Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin with Sebastian Galli. He's a senior currency strategist with Deutsche Bank, and he's kindly joined us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Let's start with uh, Brexit. We're looking ahead to April 5th uh, when the EU parliament begins to, to take up what we've seen uh, working its way from London to, to, to Brussels. What was your sense of, of what Theresa May had to say in her speech and sort of how this is all going to play out over these next uh, these next two years? Well, what you have is a typical incoherence between uh, one party and the second. And when they send you to a training in the Europe in Europe for a negotiation, and actually it was one of these officials, the first thing they teach you is uh, that the beginning is uh, a high divergence. And the one next step is basically to showing what each of the parties wants to show. And this is what the UK has done. It's shown its roadmap. The Europeans have leaked their own roadmap, so it's all very helpful and very civilized. And, and both of the roadmaps actually are completely incoherent. This is absolutely normal. What you show is you show your cards, and then you do the exchange. So what is are you willing to exchange? Apparently, the British are having a bit of a sense of humor and they're <laughs> suggesting that Gibraltar is uh, is off the map. And so I don't think that's what the uh, the Europeans were looking for, but the exchange will happen. And the, right, the problem is that they only have two years to figure out what they can uh, give and take uh, on each side. And it looks like it's politically difficult for uh, the British to accept some realities. Um, and it'll take them to, uh, some time basically to diffuse uh, the, uh, the reality uh, through the uh, UK um, political system. They already have accepted that they will actually come contribute monies uh, to the European Union, which for conservative is extremely hard to do. Mm. Um, and so there's a, a nice, decent process. Will, will it happen within two years? And very few people expect it, particularly the, the European. Typical negotiations that last five to up to 10 years. And so this is probably more what we should look forward to. The uh, UK is doing its job. Europe is doing its job. There's going to be a lot of noise, um, which is typical at the beginning of the process. That noise will eventually start to settle down and converge towards some form of solution. It'll be very painful and detailed. It'll go into Spanish fishermen, going into uh, UK territorial waters and the likes, and uh, the usual stuff we've been dealing with uh, in Europe for a long time. So very European, actually. How does this affect your world over these next uh, these next two years? You've got these two disparate maps, as you say, a lot of noise uh, in the forex space. How do you approach what's happening? Well, what it, it does uh, suggest is the uh, for now the UK is, uh, is kind of fine from a, a legal point of view uh, in terms of its access and everything. So that might actually continue for uh, longer than anyone would uh, would expect. Uh, so it's uh, less of a concern, I, I guess, from a, a short-term tactical point of view, from the point of view of somebody investing into the UK as uh, these uh, you know these different negotiations clarify themselves, and that might, might take up to a year, and then the in terms of FDI and the like, it's actually going to be uh, a decent story. Uh, the pound, by some measures, is uh, is undervalued. 
and, and so it might be attractive for people investing in commercial real estate, real estate into uh, into the United Kingdom. It might be interesting for some sovereign wealth funds and, and reserve managers to to build up some positions in the in the UK. And so it's it's not such a bad story for the UK. The market has vastly uh, priced the, the Brexit story for good reasons, and uh, and you know it does offer some uh, considerable opportunities for for the UK as a, not necessarily a manufacturing base, but uh, a base of services which is uh, somewhat cheaper. It allows them to keep the city because it has reduced the cost of holding the city uh, in the UK versus you know moving a lot of their people out into Ireland, uh, France, or or Germany for that matter. But uh, some of it will happen. Uh, you had the EU Commission President, uh, EU Council President, rather, talking about how united a front these twenty-seven nations were going to were going to present. Uh, is this an opportunity for more cohesiveness, or does the, the the fractiousness of the EU continue to play a role that that's going to make it difficult for these negotiations to take place? I, I like to think of it as, uh, and for some reason, my Irish accent is coming back, but the. <laughs> It's probably because I'm thinking about rugby, but it's it's like a big rugby team, and uh, none of the players individually are are quite similar in body shape, uh, attitude, or, or the likes. But they do uh, act uh, under crunch as as one unit, and this is typically what what you do see. And in the case of the UK, it's a pretty clear story, um, and it's not a very divisive mm-hmm. one. Uh, there are always outliers; there are always better players than others. But broadly speaking, they actually do behave uh, as a whole. One of the reasons is it's not necessarily to punish the UK; it's to make it more difficult. Right. Your colleague, Alan Ruskin, is the one that I guess has provided leadership on an outlier call of weaker sterling. How do you get to a Deutsche Bank weaker sterling? It is an abrupt, I, I'm sorry, it's a game-changing decline for the United Kingdom, isn't it, that well, you foresee? There are two components to it. One is a strong dollar view, which, of course, would push sterling lower. And number two is a recognition that some of the impulse we've seen in the UK is actually quite temporary from a cyclical point of view. And as it fades lower, um, the, uh, the the BOE is dovish and probably will end up be, uh, being more dovish than people expect. Um, and the combination relatively weak uh, growth and, to some extent, a stronger dollar, as well as some of the improvement that we've seen on the current account reversing, uh, that generally is not particularly good. So from a cyclical point of view, there there is uh, a, a clear Claim to be made, which we do, uh, that sterling should head lower. Having said that, uh, the uh, this is a view which is held by the market. Uh, one on Brexit, uh, it has made a lot of money on it. Number two, because there are positions related to France, which are euro sterling positions. People have been basically uh, being short euro and uh, long sterling, and that of course is uh, is uh, not helpful if you if you want to have an outright sterling position. The bet there is on a Macron win. When you look at uh, when you look at euro sterling. Yeah, there are very heavy uh, bets apparently in the market, uh, which are uh, done through euro sterling, euro yen, short boons, uh, as well as uh, on the OAT. Um, there, then through equities, basically a bet that uh, Mr. Macron will will actually okay, win. Okay, but, but how do you adjust <laughs> that to what we observed? Uh, forget about September, August twenty fifth, August thirty first, September second, September fourth, and then ten p.m. September eighth. Is there any humility about polls in France, given what we witnessed in the United States? You you wouldn't believe the amount of work we actually spend on, on polls in general, and polls are spent on polls in you general. You shouldn't do uh, that. You know, we, do. <laughs> we do. No, it's actually very useful. So what we do is we look at, uh, they uh, do what do they call rolling polls, which basically uh, is statistically superior. Uh, number two, they use what we call stratified polling, which is you're going to look at every type of worker, for example, every type of age, and you look in extreme details. Um, and then there are different uh, companies competing uh, against each other to see basically if we actually get the same numbers. 
And then the journalists, of course, do not believe whatsoever what the polls are. And they have decided in France that they would send people across you- the field to check uh, and see if there are basically trends which are being mi- missed by the polls. We know that there are biases to the polls. These uh, polls, for example, exclude the uh, people like me, the French outside of the of France, as well as the French outside of metropolitan France. And that gives actually a bias of roughly plus 1% to Macron on uh, the second round because they tend to be a more r- r- right-wing yeah. leaning. Seb Galley, thank you so much with Deutsche Bank this morning. Just lots to talk about here and really a, a, a recaliber for, for April. Are you in tomorrow morning, David Girl? This is, this is I'm, you know, feeling sick. I'm feeling like, no. You, you feel, you got <laughs> I'm calling type, a sick day now. You got typhoid you know, this, or dysentery this, this, this game or something starts at 920 the tip-off for this national championship game is at really? 9.20 I did not tonight, know that. which does me no favors here. I'll have to watch the surveillance replay the following I'm in the, the 11th day. percentile. Uh-huh. I feel pretty good. I'm like walking around, <laughs> strutting around. I know, Seb, I do this. It's like rugby. I do it off the color of the jersey. Yes. That's how I do it. And I, Michael Barr, I'm in the 11th percentile. And then St. Rachel walked in this morning. Yes. Do you realize she is number four out of wow. eighteen hundred people in the in, in all of Bloomberg Bloomberglandia? This yeah. is our executive producer, folks, who yeah. often sits between me and David and radio to keep us apart. <laughs> it, I knew it wasn't me because I, when I walked in the door, I heard typhoid and dysentery. I knew that wasn't me at all. Yeah. Do you know like... that Rachel even had Purdue going long? Wow! And she's still like killing it, even mistake, though her yeah. boilermakers went down oh, in flames. Wow. Good for her. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Well, I had to look up where Gonzaga is this weekend, to be honest. Yeah. Good morning, Eastern Washington you, State. Well done. <laughs> no, I'm thrilled. Thrilled you're listening in Washington State and Idaho. Uh, in Sp- is Spokane or Spokane? Big I think debate. Spokane. Are you going to watch? Spokane. Them? You're not going to okay. watch. You get up earlier than I'll night, watch so. a tip off. You, maybe. You'll wake up when the game is finished. That's what the Rangers but... are doing. You know, I, okay, folks, I had fun with this. I mean, I got a hate mail this weekend from Manila. You know nothing about basketball. I said you're right. David Gurren, Tom King. Good morning, everyone. Greatly appreciate your attendance in Washington in our 99.1 FM News Bureau. Uh, uh, Ted Alden of the Council on Foreign Relations. His book is Failure to Adjust. Can't say enough about it on trade. Ted, all of my reading on China is that they have every advantage to wait and wait and wait. Do they outweigh this president to the next president? Oh, I, I think there's no question. Yeah, no, they're they're playing the long game. They're very patient. I think if you look at the way they reacted to Trump after the election during the transition period, he was uh, firing off some provocative tweets, uh, call with the president of Taiwan. He did a number of provocative things, and the Chinese responded quite calmly and steadily. So, yeah, I think they will wait as long as they need to wait. Ted, I talked to Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, on Friday, and I asked him what was going to be on the agenda for these meetings in Florida. He said trade's going to be high up there. What does this administration want? What, what's the outcome they hope for uh, out of this, uh, this meet and greet, this, this two-day meeting at Mar-a-Lago? 
I, I, I do not think they have any particular deliverables in mind. I think they want to try to get some sense that the Chinese are willing to cooperate on North Korea, which is obviously at, at something of a crisis point in terms of uh, North Korea's ability to, to develop a deliverable nuclear missile. I think on trade, I think all they want is an acknowledgement that it's a big issue between the United States and China, that the trade deficit is a problem, and that they're going to deal with it. I don't uh, expect anything more specific than that out of this meeting. Secretary Ross was at his most animated when I asked him about this letter, this draft of a letter that was leaked by congressional staffers. Uh, to, to get NAFTA talk started again, you have to give 90 days notice, I, I gather. Uh, what's your sense of the timetable there? This administration seems eager to reopen conversations about what happens to NAFTA. Do we know more about what provisions in particular they hope to see changed? Well, that, that letter is a bit of a laundry list, and there are things in there that have been on the agenda for a long time. There's a bunch of things in there, ironically, that were renegotiated as part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership that President Trump walked away from on day one. And there are other items that I think would be very controversial, um, you know, taking a look at, at, at tax issues, the, the dispute settlement process over trade cases, anti-dumping, countervailing duty cases. The U.S. wants a kind of snapback provision where it can reimpose tariffs. So, so there are some pretty explosive items in that list. We just don't know what the priority is. It's a bit of a laundry list at this point. A bit of a laundry list, and I was surprised as well. Again, drawing from that conversation, the degree to which Secretary Ross said that the the TPP would provide some starting points for these negotiations. So I suppose uh, the, the the TPP lives on. What do you think will will continue to shape trade policy from that uh, that trade bill that we've stepped out of? I, I I think that this administration is just in this period where it's trying to to figure out where the openings are. I mean, Donald Trump has made a lot of big promises on trade that he's going to change direction in some fundamental ways, and and everything that we've seen so far is rather modest. I mean, Paul Krugman in his column this morning called well, the executive actions on Friday a couple of nothing burgers, and and I think yeah. that was largely correct. Um, I don't think there, there there's anything there. So so I I continue to be puzzled what kinds of specifics they're, well, they're going to go for. They've got more cautious, which may be a good thing. If we all understand, anybody listening to this, whatever their politics, the multilateral is gone. It was from another time and place. And then I guess there's bilateral, and then there's unilateral, and to pick up on nothing burgers, is there no lateral? Is the basic idea here is we have a party or a theology that says we don't want to do trade, we don't want to argue with anybody? Well, I mean, you you could I mean you you could have an administration that says, look, we're going to live with the status quo in terms of the agreements, yeah. and we're going to try to do better in terms of exporting using the rules we have. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's nothing that says that every agreement has to be superseded by another agreement and another agreement. We've been doing that for fifty or sixty years, but there's no ironclad law that you have to keep doing that. You could just work in the rules you've got right now. What's this document going to look like uh, that uh, Secretary Ross and his colleagues are going to prepare over these next uh, 90 days? He called it unprecedented, the degree to which he's going to look at this on a company-by-company -company basis. Help me with the history. How unprecedented is it? And then what, what's... Uh What's that 90-day 90, that 90 document going to look like? Well, I don't think it is all that unprecedented. I mean, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office every year releases what's called the National Trade Estimates, and it looks into foreign trade barriers. It's a 500-plus 
eight-page document of all the places that we think our trading partners aren't living up to their obligations. I presume it's going to repeat a lot of that. The only difference may be a bit more of a focus specifically on the countries with which the U.S. runs a large trade deficit. But, but of course, I mean, as you know, trade deficits are not all driven by trade policy. A lot of it has to do with savings imbalances and big macroeconomic questions. I don't know whether they're going to get into that. I don't know whether no. they're going to include currency. That's treasury territory historically. A lot of unknowns again. Ted Alden, thank you so much for the Council on Foreign Relations. This important book is Failure to Adjust. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member SIPC. Mr. Wren is with us. So Scott Wren with Wells Fargo. We won't ask about Scott Wren's <laughs> bracket. Scott, help me with the equity market bracket, uh, if you would. Um, we were just talking uh, with Lindsay Bell of CFRA about the, the double-digit reality we live in. When does that end? Well, Tom, Leon, let's talk about the market because my basketball bracket was a complete disaster. Fair enough, fair but. Uh, you know, our, our view really hasn't changed in terms of what the market's going to do this year since late September of last year when we set our targets. You know, we've been looking for the S&P 500 to hit its annual high for 2017 somewhere around the middle of the year. Um, you know, we have a upper end of our target range is 2330. We thought it would be at or, or slightly above that. We've been slightly above that. So for us, um, you know, could the market trade a little bit higher? Sure. Is it going to trade a lot higher? We don't think so. We think we're going to see a fade, um, you know, end up somewhere 2230, 2330, somewhere like that at the end of the year. So, you know, our views really have not changed over the last, uh, you know, six months or so. How about your sense of the uh, the economy, Scott Wren? Well, you know, David, I think it's still, you know, you're grinding it out. You're in a modest growth economy. Uh, you don't have a lot of inflation, although I think we're going to see a little bit of wage push here. And I think that's going to be the headwind, really, for the market in the second half here. Um, but, you know, the economy continues to chug along. Labor market continues to slowly improve. Consumer spending's okay. So I don't think there's really been much of a change in the economy at all, not just versus 20. 16, but really 2015, 14, 13. I mean, this has been a, you know, this has been a 2% on a calendar year kind of recovery for the most part. And, and I think through 2017, that's not going to change. And, and really, um, probably through 2018 as well. We we're talking about healthcare with Lindsay Bell. How much was, was the, uh, when investors looked at that healthcare, that healthcare bill, the potential for a healthcare vote, how much was that about healthcare versus something else? How much did investors actually care that it had to do with healthcare? I don't think investors cared very much that it had to do with health care. I think that it was uh, just an overall feel for, okay, is this, is, uh, you know, what does this mean for the rest of the agenda? Are we going to see anything at all? Are we going to see any cooperation uh, with the president from the Republicans? We know we're not going to get much from the Democrats. So I think it was, uh, uh, the market took it as a little bit of a broader signal. And I think overall, you know, the market, 
has been more optimistic, or at least some investors have been more optimistic, thinking we would actually see some economic effects from some proposals in 2017, which, you know, we just don't see that. I look, Scott Wren, at where we are, and to me it's this miracle of single-digit organic revenue growth becoming double-digit wonder down the income statement. Have you been surprised at that? Have you been surprised at the persistency of leverage, good constructive use of leverage to operating margin expansion? Well, I think that, you know, margins have, have really hung in here. We've looked for them to continue to hang in here. We still think they're going to be uh, rather high. You know, the consensus earnings estimate, we've been at $127. Uh, you know, I don't think it was that long ago where the consensus was at uh, 135 or so. You know, now we're down to 130 I think we're probably going to see estimates come off. There's about a 10% uh, 10% expectation for the first quarter. You know, eight ten percent, something like that. I think that's yeah. okay. But net net, the consensus I think for twenty seventeen is a little too optimistic. I, I, David, I I find it remarkable the lectures, the panels, the speeches I've been added part of, where everybody was certain about five or six of the most eight or nine percent return on equities. Mm. Just stunning. Scott Ryan, how much of a driver are earnings at this point when you're looking at the market? Well. You know, David, it's kind of funny because I don't think, you know, earnings were absolutely zero driver all through 2016 because people were looking for 20 into 2017 for, you know, at least a year ahead of time. Uh, I think this year earnings will be a, a little bit more important. Um, I don't think that, you know, these modest expectations, that's what we're going to see. Um, you know, two, three dollars of earnings over the course of the year, you're splitting hairs there. Uh, but I think what's going to continue to to drive things and, and what people are going to be thinking about is what policies might be implemented. Is the magnitude going to be enough to move the needle on an $18 trillion economy? Um, and what kind of cooperation, of course, all that means for, you know, between Congress and, and the new administration. So, you know, earnings, you know, when you're growing 2%, I mean, the chance of a big big beat or a big miss overall, it, it's really slim. Um, so I don't think earnings are going to be a big driver here. Yeah, but, but help me here with where I go. I mean, bonds, can you find a coupon that justifies ownership of bonds given where Chair Yellen's heading? Well, I think that's pretty tough, and I think our you know our fixed income guys would tell you that you still want to own some bonds. But you know, in the stock market, we're not looking for the end of the cycle. We're just looking for some headwinds, some a little bit of fear of wage inflation in 2018, a little bit of a fear that the Fed might be behind the curve. Um, we've had a good run here, obviously, uh, over the course of the last six or seven years, and so I, I think this is more. This will be when you look at the market on December 31st versus where it was on January. 1st. You know, this will be more of a stall year. Maybe you see total mm -hmm. return of low single digit to 6%, something like that, which, you know, that's fine. I mean, this is, like you said, the, the, the economy's grinding it out. This is kind of a grinded out kind of market. Um, we want to still lean toward those sectors that are sensitive to um, a continuation of the recovery. Now, if we'd see a run up here to 2,500 or something, we may make some adjustments, yeah, I, get I, a little I, less cyclical, that kind of thing. But, you know, I think you still have to lean for, uh, lean toward those 
cyclical sectors still outperforming. So give me an example of that. Narrow that down. Give me the one okay, sector so that where would be, Michael Barr that would be has to like Industrials, <laughs> the consumer discretionary sector, financials. We also like healthcare, but obviously is, that one. Is toothpaste one. discretionary? Uh, toothpaste is not discretionary. Okay, so thank, you. Falls, thank you. Thank you. Yes, that thank discussion. you. We're all buying that, and deodorant's not. Um, really? Not, Give us an example of a consumer discretionary. Some, you know, some people it is, I guess, but but yeah. So we want we want things that um, that are going to benefit from you know continuation of good consumer sentiment, continuation yeah. of a decent labor market, better growth internationally, mm-hmm. a little bit better, better growth here, a little bit better. You know th- those kinds of things. Yeah. Cardinals opening day. Oh, you know, I, I tell you, when uh, you know when you when you win in the bottom of the ninth um, on your yeah. home opener versus the reigning world champions, um, that's a good feeling. I guess so, Scott Wren. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Wells Fargo, uh, St. Louis Cardinals four three. Pretty, pretty Over the cool. Cubs, yeah, well yeah. done. Yankees. Uh, you know. <laughs> I've seen I've seen like fourteen <laughs> surveys in a row, Michael Barr. They have the Red Sox taking everything. My radar is so up. I don't even know if I can get to the Talk end of Talk about April. problems with polling. I no. have Takata yeah. in my fantasy baseball league, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. no. And, and he was great in, in spring training. Just He was lights out, and then all of a she, sudden, pow. Sharon had, or Susan, rather, on, on Yankees radio, I think his ERA is 23. Yeah, it, it is. For yeah. those of you global, that's not a good number. You want it to be <laughs> three or four would be your earns run average. Uh, one of the uh, responsibilities of interns at NPR is on Friday afternoons to pick up E.J. Dion from the lobby and bring him up to All Things Considered, where he uh, regularly appears with David Brooks for a Week in Review segment. You it was a real highlight. So you don't have to do that, right? <laughs> it was a real highlight for me uh, when I was an intern uh, at NPR well over uh, a decade ago. E.J. Dion joins us now. He's a columnist for The Washington Post, the author of Why the Right Went Wrong, Conservatism from Goldwater to Trump and Beyond, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution. E.J., great to speak with you again. Thanks for uh, appearing on the program. And let's start with, uh, with what we learned over the course of the last few weeks here uh, about Washington from the debate uh, over this health care law. Less interested here in, in, in what happens with health care and more just about the way that Washington is functioning or not under this new president. What's your takeaway? Well, first, thank you for those very kind words. You'll be pleased to know that NPR doesn't waste intern time ah. anymore picking us up, and we go right up ourselves. You fly the way yourself. Uh, but Good. that was really nice of you to say. Thank you. Here's what I think you saw. You saw first that Donald Trump really doesn't care that much about what's in a policy. Uh, I think one of the best pieces on this was written by a young and actually conservative journalist called Tim Alberta, who used to write for National Review, yeah, now writes for Politico. And there was a moment where um, Trump was being asked serious questions about uh, by some members of the Freedom Caucus, and he dismissed all substantive questions using a barnyard epithet. I don't want to spoil your airtime by using the actual word <laughs> he used. You. And he didn't care what you know really what was in the bill. He was just looking for a win. This bill basically contradicted uh, his own promises. I think on the Paul Ryan side, what you saw is. Paul Ryan is far more interested in tax cuts than he is in 
uh, in health care policy. And this bill, you know, through, according to the CBO, would have led 24 million people to lose their health insurance over a decade. Uh, that didn't seem to matter much to Ryan, but it did to a lot of members. And there's the, here's the third thing, that we've been talking a lot about how the Freedom Caucus sank this bill, the right-wing members of the House. But the New York Times did a very interesting analysis that showed that by their count, they had 33 no votes that they had counted. And of those, a majority were not Freedom Caucus members. A lot of them came from either they were either somewhat more moderate or center-right in their views. Some of them came from districts that voted for Clinton. And they voted against the bill for what you might call liberal reasons, which is they didn't want to throw all these people off health care. So you really had an incoherent approach to repealing Obamacare. And I've been quoting my favorite philosopher, Joni Mitchell, actually. <laughs> she's a folk singer, as you know. And she said, uh, famously, you don't know what you got till it's gone. And a lot of people looked at Obamacare and said, gee, we didn't like it because we didn't like the label. These were people who didn't like President Obama. Um, but they realized that this law covers a whole lot of people. And so it's not perfect. It needs fixing. But this wouldn't have fixed it. This would have gotten rid of it. E.J., what do you make of the, the White House's approach to health care? What does it tell us about its approach to tax reform? Is what well, we look to see how fulsomely this White House would embrace a piece of legislation that was uh, drafted by uh, legislators on the Hill. Uh, is a lesson to be learned here that the White House should take a, a greater role in, in defining what it wants out of tax reform? Uh, absolutely. And what's interesting about tax reform is that um, it splits uh, not only uh, Republicans in Congress, uh, it also uh, splits Republicans in the White House. There's apparently a real war going on between those who favor Paul Ryan's proposal, which would, in effect, tax uh, imports by levying uh, the corporate tax in different ways domestically on, you know, on exports, which would be free uh, from tax, and on imports, which would have a tax. This splits business very much. <clears throat> Importing businesses mm -hmm. like Walmart really don't like this way of doing corporate tax reform. Um, so they're going to have to make hard choices. Well, I, I just don't think tax reform is uh, easy the way a lot of uh, Republicans well, seem to be saying it is. E.J., November 7th, 1972, I believe you were exiting stage right Portsmouth Priory up in Rhode Island on your way to journalism, journalism and literature glory. Mr. McGovern went down in flames. McGovern Shriver. What does your Democrat Party do now? Bill Mayer was really heated about the Clintons this weekend. What should the Clintons do, and what should the Democrats do to regroup? First of all, you made me younger than I am, yeah. which I really appreciate. I worked at it. college on that election day, but thank you. Um, a couple of things. One is, um, is sometimes in politics we forget the power of negative thinking. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, his program was built on three big negatives, anti-communist, anti-government, anti-tax. Uh, and I think in this period, to be opposed to Donald Trump is to be in the situation where you can rally the vast majority of Americans. Right now, Trump's approval rating is running between as low as 35 percent recently and Gallup to 40 percent. So I don't think you should underestimate the power 
of opposing Trump. Secondly, I think what Democrats should do, and I have a hunch you'll see it, is that they need to oppose what uh, Trump is putting forward when it is not in line with what they want, which is, in most cases, uh, it is not in line with what they want. Um, but they should be putting out proposals on infrastructure, on how they would fix Obamacare to make it work better, uh, on what they would do for uh, working-class voters, white and black, who were at the center of the conversation the last campaign. So they should just say, this is what we would do. If Trump wants to come to them, if Trump says, gee, I can support some of this, then you have a different political situation. Uh, in the meantime, I think they should continue to say, we're not going to repeal the Affordable Care Act. That's one of our great achievements. We're going to fight repeal of Wall Street reform. That's another significant achievement. Uh, and we're going to fight Trump where he seems to be abusing his power, whether it's on conflicts of interest or in seeming not to want this investigation on the Russia connection to go forward. When you look at how the, the Democrats performed uh, during the last campaign, what are the, the biggest deficits as you, as you see them? And, and how is the party learning from them? Uh, and further... Uh, how deep is their bench? When, when you look at sort of rising stars in the party, who are you looking at? Um, well, in last election, I, you know, I am one of those who thinks that the Comey intervention tipped it. Of course, it's easy to say uh, when an election is decided by 77,000 votes in three states uh, to say almost anything you point to could decide it. Mm. But I think Comey mattered. Clearly, the Clinton campaign should have seen the problems uh, in Michigan and Wisconsin coming. She lost uh, the primary in Wisconsin by a huge margin to Bernie Sanders. She also, to her surprise, lost Michigan. Uh, and I think they, um, you know, they just made a, mis uh, you know, a tactical mistake. But I think the other thing is what the Democrats need to do and what the Clinton campaign failed to do is to present a sort of a compact message to working class voters mm -hmm. who were hurting in this economy. There are a lot of places, including my dear hometown of Fall River, mm -hmm. uh, that have been hammered by deindustrialization. Clinton had a lot of specific proposals, but she didn't focus on them enough. They, they counted on Trump's disabilities to elect them. You know, in my view, that should have been enough in principle. But in fact, voters wanted to hear what she was going to do about these lingering problems in the economy. And I think that's a place where the Democrats and everybody really have to put a lot of attention. There was this study that came out a couple of weeks ago from uh, you know paper sponsored by Brookings, uh, the Case and Deaton paper, that talked about despair, deaths of despair among working-class people, white working-class people. Sobering study, yeah. And uh, this is a national crisis. And I think similarly, the same forces that are hurting towns like Fall River or Reading, Pennsylvania, are hurting um, uh, inner cities as well. And so I think uh, they need a, a message that crosses racial lines, uh, but that talks about those parts of the economy that aren't prospering. You know, big cities, many of our big cities are prospering. Uh, many parts of the country are, but there are parts that have been left badly behind, uh, and they deserve to be mad. E.J. Dion, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Brookings and, of course, the Washington uh, Post. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. 
Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.